I want to begin this morning with a quick disclaimer. I'm looking around. I don't know if this applies to anybody or not, but if any parents left their children in here this morning from junior church, you might want to consider differently today. Uh, this, this passage in Romans is definitely adult, and I cannot do it any other way. And so it's up to you. You're the parents, and you can decide what's right for your kids. But uh, we're going to talk about some things today. Romans chapter 1. I think the bulletin says we're going to start in 24, but let's go back to verse 16 and start there again and read to the end of the chapter. Romans 1, 16 to the end. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, And receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. And, Lord, we come to it today knowing that it is indeed your word. Father, these are difficult topics, and especially in our society. And so I pray today for your guidance and your wisdom. I pray for clarity. I pray for the Holy Spirit to empower. I pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to help us to hear as well as to help me to speak. I pray, Lord, today for compassion. I pray that as we talk about these things, that there would be no hint of anything but that. And I pray that there would be no needless offense. Father, if the cross offends, if the truth of the word of God offends, Lord, we have to to trust you for that. But may nothing that I would say, no mannerism, no personal 
bias, no anything like that that might come out. May nothing like that offend, I pray. And I just pray you'd guide us today. Help us as we think about this truth. God gave them up. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we asked the question a couple weeks ago when we last looked in Romans, is God angry? And we concluded that, uh, yes, apparently he is. From verse number 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we learned that there are three primary reasons, at least in that passage, that Paul says uh, explain God's wrath. First of all, his truth being suppressed in verse 18, his revelation being ignored in verses 19 and 20, and his glory being perverted in verses 21 through 23. And, and that seemed like a hard enough passage, didn't it? It seemed like there was enough there for us to chew on. But Paul's not done. The statement that he made in verse number 18, he's still developing and he's still working through as we continue on here uh, in, in this, the remainder of this chapter. He's building his case. And I think he's now describing one of the ways in which God's wrath is being revealed. And it's seen in a phrase that's repeated three times in the passage we read today. It's seen in verse number 24. It's seen in verse number 26. It's seen in verse number 28. And it's that little phrase, God gave them up. I think Paul is here describing how the lost world from the fall of man right up until the very end attempts to get away from God. And how God, in attempting to draw them back to him, allows them to experience the results of their rebellion. He gives them up to it. It's true of history in general. We certainly see it. It's also true of an individual human being who lives in rebellion against God. And many people... Uh, Many people in this room, myself included, can testify to the reality of those things. If you choose to live contrary to God's laws, he'll allow you to do it for a while and let you reap the results. If you choose to run from God, live a life in rebellion against God, he'll allow you to do it. He'll give you up to it, give you up to that desire. He'll let you run and let you reap the results of that. God gave them up. I can't read that chapter without it stabbing me in the heart because it's so true of so many I have known. They rebelled against God and he gave them up to that rebellion and they paid the price. God gave them up. They said no to God and he gave them up to that answer and they paid the price for that refusal. Now, in describing God's giving up of mankind here, Paul mentions three distinct levels at which he did this. And I don't believe that these three different areas in verse 24, 26, and 28, I don't think that he's specifically saying here that these are, uh, you know, the worst of sins or anything like that. I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think he picked them because of that. I think he perhaps picked these sins simply because they were known. They were an issue. They were something that everyone would have been able to relate to. Sexual sin is mentioned here, and so we have absolutely no choice this morning but to discuss it. And that's why I ask that, you know, parents might want to think about taking their kids out this morning. Uh, It's certainly relevant to our day, but it was certainly relevant to Paul's day, too. When you read the, the things that went on in the Roman Empire, sometimes it makes our day seem quite tame by comparison. And maybe that's why Paul chose it, because of its ubiquity, because it was everywhere, because people would have understood it. He talks about sexual sin. He talks about homosexuality here. 
And then he goes on and he touches on a list of sins that is so broad and so it covers just about every spectrum of our of our existence that we have to think he's just really talking about sin in general because everything seems to be included here. And he's saying that God gave them up. God gave them up. He abandoned mankind and abandons mankind to their rebellion so that as they slide deeper and deeper into the consequences of their choices, maybe they'll see their folly and maybe they'll turn back. To him, God gave them up. Same thought is seen other places in the Bible. When man insists on his way over God's, God gives them up and lets them have their way. Psalm chapter 81, my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Acts chapter 7, they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Ephraim wants to worship idols. God said, I'll let him worship idols. Let him alone. God gave them up. He abandoned them to the natural consequences of their sin so that they would see their need of a Savior. God gave them up. Well, I want us to notice the three different examples that Paul uses here in verse 24, verse 26, and verse number 28. And... uh, We'll make one final application at the end, and then we'll be done. Notice, first of all, in verse number 24, God gave them up to uncleanness. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who has blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up to uncleanness. Now, this might not be as clear as you would think in your English Bible. That word uncleanness might seem a broad word to you, but it really means sexual impurity. That's what the word means. Sexual impurity. So he gave them up to that. When God created man and God created woman in the Garden of Eden, he created sexual desire, one for the other. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex is a natural part of God's creation. He gave it to us as a gift, both for the continuation of life and for the pleasure in life. But from the moment man and woman fell into sin, we have been dissatisfied with the way God designed that and demanded more. You see, God says sex is a good thing and a wonderful and honorable thing within the confines for which he defined it, he designed it. And that's marriage between a man and a woman. Hebrews 13 is a verse you ought to circle in your Bible. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Sex within marriage is a good thing, a blessed thing by God. But in that same verse, God also warns that sex outside of the confines of marriage is a sinful thing. Marriage is honorable among all the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So what does this mean? In our sex-filled 21st century America, where it is common for there to be no limits on sexual freedom and sexual activity. 
What does it mean to those who believe and teach that couples should live together before they get married? What does it mean to young people who are dating and feeling the temptations of the opposite sex? What does it mean to the man or woman in an unfulfilling and unfulfilled relationship whose eyes wander to the co-worker across the room? What does it mean? (laughs) It means that those things are sin. God's word is absolutely clear. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Any sex outside of marriage, from the very first touch to the very final act, it is sin. And the Bible uses a few words here that help. We just read two of them, fornication and adultery. Fornication is everywhere referred to in the Bible as sinful. It is one of only a couple things in the entire word of God that we are told to flee from, not fight against, run from it. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. That word comes from the Greek word pornea, which basically just means uh, sexual impurity. It's It's a word from which we get our English word pornography. It's a very broadly defined word. It describes any sexual activity that takes place outside of marriage between a man and his wife. Sex before marriage is fornication. Sex outside of marriage is fornication. Sexual activity of various degrees is fornication. Even the viewing of pornography, which, if we can believe the statistics, is a problem for almost everybody in this room, if the statistics are true. Fornication. Adultery is another word used in the Bible, but it's a more restrictive word. For adultery to occur, there needs to be a marriage involved. Adultery is sex between people who are married, at least one of them is, but not to each other. Adultery is unfaithfulness to a marriage partner. And so Paul says here that God gave them up to these things. He abandoned them. He abandons us even today to the natural consequences of such sin so that we may see that it is a dead end and so that we may turn once we've reached that realization back to him. Turn our hearts back toward God. I wonder this morning if anyone here is wrestling with these things because if you are, you're far from alone. It is a dead end. And there is no happiness. And there is no fulfillment at the end of that road. There's only pain. There's only suffering. And God is trying to turn your heart back to Him. He gave them up to uncleanness. Number two, look at verse 26. He he gave them up to vile passions. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. God gave them up to vile passions. Another translation would be shameful lusts. A Michigan gymnasium reportedly canceled a woman's membership I just read this this week in the news. After she refused to stop telling other members that a man was using the women's locker room. The woman told this, this, this news source that the incident occurred at a Planet Fitness on February 28th when she walked into the women's locker room and was freaked out because there was a man in there. She told the front desk, and when she did, employees told her that the person identifies as a woman. She took her case to the gym's corporate office, but was told that they would not tell the person to stay out of the women's locker room because the gym is a, quote, no-judgment zone, unquote. She returned to the gym each day between Monday and Thursday. She said she told other women about what she saw. She reportedly received a call from the corporate officer telling her that she violated the no-judgment policy. 
And so she was told she was no longer welcomed at the gym after not agreeing to stop talking about the other person in the locker room. The public relations director for Planet Fitness said in a statement that members can use the appropriate locker room corresponding with their personal gender identity. Planet Fitness is committed to creating a non-intimidating, welcoming environment for our members. The statement read, our gender identity non-discrimination policy states that members and guests may use all gym facilities based on their sincere, self-reported gender identity. The statement continued, saying that this woman exhibited behavior that the gym deemed disruptive, which led to the cancellation of her membership. What do you say about a thing like this? I think it was Seinfeld who popularized the phrase, not that there's anything wrong with that. And he was doing that to address issues such as homosexuality. I just found out that so-and-so is gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And now you hear that all the time. After all, Seinfeld, like so much of our world today, has bought into Satan's lie that there is nothing wrong with it. And we have to be so careful to avoid saying there might be. But Mr. Seinfeld, I have to tell you, the Bible says there is something wrong with it. Just recently, leaders in a community in Florida, I just read this again this past week, and I can't remember the name of the town. And they got wind that a church might be preaching against homosexuality, so they sent in undercover agents to spy on the church and then leveled a bunch of charges against the church, all kinds of different things, zoning violations, all kinds of things, to try to shut them down and stop them from teaching about those kinds of things. And so I would say this morning, if there are any Gestapo agents in here, I can save you a lot of time. Homosexuality is sin. And we're not going to hide behind it. And we're not going to let you try to trick us into revealing it. We believe the Bible. We can say it plainly. Homosexuality is sin. I do not know how anybody could read verses 26 through 27 and come up with any other conclusion. If you have a brain, if you understand the English language, it is not possible to interpret those verses any other way. The words that are used here are specifically sexual in meaning. Even the words for men and women are the sexual words for male and female in these verses. These verses teach that homosexuality is a perversion of God's intent for sex. The only sexual relationship God designed and smiles upon is within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Sex before marriage, when married with someone other than your spouse. And as we see here, sex with someone of the same gender are not blessed by God. Notice how they're described in these verses. They are described as vile, unnatural, shameful, error, deserving of penalty, due penalty. There's no other way to interpret the verses. And so if we want to take the Seinfeld approach, we're just going to have to take our penknife and cut this passage out of our Bible. And we can't do that. The words natural and unnatural are helpful here, aren't they? Paul used those two words. Did you see that? He talked about natural relations and unnatural relations. And I think one of the reasons that uh, we oftentimes look at verses 24 and 25 and say that type of sex is not quite as far down the scale of sin as the homosexual sex described in the other is because of Paul's use of those words. Fornication and adultery is at least natural. It's at least natural use of men and women. 
It's immoral outside of marriage. It's sin outside of marriage because God has declared it so, but at least it's natural. Homosexuality on the otherwise, on the other hand, is not natural. Lesbianism, not natural. Paul says here it's a perversion of what God created and designed. And hence it's a further step down, the downward slope of mankind's rebellion from God. Now, I, I want to be as clear as I can possibly be this morning. Because most of you believe everything you read on your, you hear on your television sets, and most of you never turn your TVs off. Uh, I go in people's homes all the time, and the TV never goes off. And it just amazes me. And we have been brainwashed to believe that this type of relationship is actually a perfectly natural thing. In every science class that you kids will ever attend in secular school, you're going to hear that it is a perfectly natural and normal thing. You're going to learn that the loving thing, the right thing, is to accept it. But the Bible says just the opposite. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's God's mind on it. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That's God's mind on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. First Timothy chapter 1, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. If there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, that's God's mind on it. And so what does this say to the person who struggles with same-sex attraction? Because it's real. What does this say? Well, it means you need to keep fighting against it. Desire is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Giving in to that is sin. And so don't act upon it. You see, there's a lie that has been foisted on all of us, a lie that would have us believe that people are born with such a preference and they cannot be otherwise. The desire might be there, but you don't have to act upon it. And the lie is telling us that we're unloving and we're evil if we say it is sin and if we say that it must be rejected, if we say that we believe the Bible. We're the ones that are unloving. It's not true. Rick Warren said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. And both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. To that I would say amen. It's not unloving to say you're on a wrong road if you're on a wrong road. If a person's about to drink a glass of poison, and I see they're about to drink a glass of poison... And they say to me, but I like the poison. Is it unloving for me to smack the poison out of their hand? No. My grandson Jericho is like a little motor car roaring all around the house these days. Years ago, I removed the door down into my basement because it was an inconvenience to me to constantly be opening that door. But now Jericho is zooming around the house, and so I put the door back up. Would it be the loving thing for me to say, well, Jericho wants to know what's down those steps. I should let him explore. Or would it be the loving thing to say he's going to fall down the steps and break his neck and put the door back up? 
You see, the easy thing for me as your pastor or for any pastor would be to cave to societal pressure and ignore this issue. That would be the easy way. Kevin DeYoung recently said, What will it profit a man if he gains a round of societal applause but loses his own soul? And that's where we're at. We cannot ignore this section of God's Word. I can't, and neither can you. The fact is, homosexuality is sin, regardless of what the world says. And another fact is that it is no different than any other sin. It has natural consequences. And Paul is saying right here that God gave them up to this so that they might experience the natural consequences and hopefully be drawn back to Him. That's why He gave them up to it. Pretty amazing to think about it, but even in this secular world where, you know, there's not anything wrong with that, even in this secular world, even the world recognizes that there are natural consequences to this particular sin. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this, he tells this story. He says, not long ago, Time magazine ran a cover story on AIDS called The Big Chill, Fear of AIDS, in which even this obviously secular magazine spoke religiously. It spoke of AIDS as a vague sort of retribution, an Old Testament-style revenge. It quoted novelist Erica Jong, author of Fear of Flying and a former high priestess of sexual abandon, as saying, It's hard enough to find attractive single men without having to quiz them on their history of bisexuality and drug use, demand blood test results, and thrust condoms into their hands. Wouldn't it be easier to give up sex altogether and join some religious order? Time also quoted a Los Angeles entertainment writer. AIDS pushes monogamy right back up there on the priority list. And then Boyce asks, why is this? Why are even secular magazines and newspapers beginning to sound like prophets? It's because of the given. It's because of the unchangeable physical and moral character of the universe in which we live. We may not like it. Most of us don't. We would change it if we could, but we cannot. It is God's universe and it does not change. And therefore, the only wise thing is to come to terms with it. Repent of sin and come back to God in the way he has provided through faith in the sacrifice of himself for us by Jesus Christ. God gave them up to vile passions so that they might experience those consequences and turn back to him. One last uh, one last example is in verse 28. Even as God did not like to retain, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God gave them up to a debased mind. I think Paul is describing a progression here in all of these in all of this this section. I think he's we've already seen that it pictures the downward slide of mankind down 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 into ever increasing degrees of sinfulness, ever and ever further away from God. That's what he's picturing here. Started out with sexual impurity, it progressed to vile passions and now it culminates with a debased mind. The end result Of living a life apart from God. Of a life that says no to God. Of a life that rebels against His call for you. Is a completely corrupt and broken mind. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. In other words, they put God out of their minds. And He said, okay. He abandoned them to that choice. You don't want me in your mind? Your mind will be without me. And our minds, apart from God, are hopelessly corrupt. Our minds, apart from God, are debased. Unless God intervenes, our minds in this state are simply incapable of clear thinking. And we see plenty of that around us, don't we? 
And the result, and we won't go into all of this, but the result is all kinds of sin. Look at that extensive list that he gives there. All of it, which springs from this debased mind that he has given us up to. There are things in that list which we would think are absolutely terrible. Murders in that list. There are things in that list which we would think, well, why is that there? Did, did all of you teens notice the reference to the disobedience of parents in there? Did you see that? Listed right alongside of murder and adultery and homosexuality and all those things. It's bad stuff. All these different variations of sin are mentioned because I think what Paul is trying to do here is just point out to us, it's all sin. It's all sin. Not that anyone is more important than the other. They're all sin. And all of these sins are a result of a mind devoid of God in rebellion against God, abandoned by God. And Paul says it's important to recognize these are not helpless people. These are not people who are unaware of their need for God. These are just people who are rebelling against it. They've chosen to ignore him, he says in verse 28. They know these truths, according to verse number 32. And it is true, isn't it? All men, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, all men and women everywhere know these truths. There is a moral code written within the heart of all of us, wherever you are. There is a moral code People know there's a penalty for sin. In Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul was marooned on an island with a bunch of natives. Heathen people, as far as we can tell from the scripture. And notice what it says. Oh, while he was there, he got bit by a snake. The snake was hanging off of his hand. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 4, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. Everybody knows. Everybody understands. It's not that people are helpless. Well, so God gave them up to uncleanness, sexual impurity, to vile passions, homosexuality, and to a debased mind. And he did that. He gave them up so that they might turn back to him. Now, I have been using that phrase, God gave them up. Because our New King James Bible uses that phrase, God gave them up. And it is an accurate translation of the Greek, but you know what? It might, also, it, it might cause you to go down a wrong road. It might cause you to think that God was saying he was done with them. That God was saying he was washing his hands of them. That he was giving up completely. That all hope was lost. But as we have seen, that's not what he meant. And that's why you might be holding a translation that says God gave them over. Equally accurate but maybe a little bit more clear for our way of thinking. God gave them over. He didn't give up on mankind. His love for us was was and is too great for that. He doesn't desire our destruction. All of this was for our reconciliation. All of this is to draw the lost back to Him. He gave them over to this that they might see their need. I love this passage in Hosea chapter 11. When God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. How can I give you up? That's the heart of God. It's the heart of God for every one of these people that is described in here. It's the heart of God for you. It's the heart of God for me. How can I give you up? If God had given up on mankind, there'd be no gospel. There'd be no good news. There'd be no Romans. There'd be no Paul. There'd be no you. There'd be no me. There would have been no Jesus. There would have been no cross, no resurrection, no hope. God did not 
and will not give you an eye up. Oh, we need to hear the word of the Lord this morning. There's no such thing as being too far gone. All, all can be saved. Whosoever will may come. As long as you're still breathing here today, it is not too late for you. And God has not given up on you. Oh, there's going to come a day. There will come a day when you come to the end of, uh, of your life and, and you have refused the gospel of grace to your very last breath. And then you will find on that very day that, yes, indeed, God has given up. But that's not this day. Are you here? Are you breathing? And God may have given you over to your sin, so you'll see your need, but he has not given up on you. The gospel's true, and you can be saved. No matter your sin, no matter where you might be on this downward slope that's described here in such horrifying words, it doesn't matter where you are, God loves you, and he poured out his wrath, not on you, but on his son. So he wouldn't have to pour it out on you. God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He hasn't given up on you. And we Christians, we Christians who know the salvation that is ours in this amazing gospel, this amazing grace that plucks us out of this cesspool that we've made of our lives, gives us hope, gives us eternal life. We who know that, we must not ever give up on anybody either. We must never give up. Someone once spoke to John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader and referred to himself as a slave of slaves later in his life. We know John Newton for the fact that he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. This person talked to John Newton one time about a person he regarded as a hopeless case and he was despairing of him. He didn't think he'd ever be saved. And Newton replied, quote, I have never despaired for any man since God saved me. And no matter who we're talking about, no matter where they are on this long progression that Paul describes so terribly here. Their sin's no different than ours. Whether it's sexual sin or homosexual sin or any of the huge list of sins Paul provides here, they're all in the same boat. And all have the same hope. And so, church, we don't give up on them, just as God doesn't give up on them. Let us preach and teach and witness and share and shout the good news that we have to from the top of our steeple. God's wrath is real, but so is his love. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He gives us over to the consequences of our sin so that we will see the hopelessness of it and look up to the one who doesn't want to ever give us up.